Welcome to the Wet Podcast, episode number seven. Just me. I had an interview set up that um, initially she had to cancel a couple weeks ago and then rescheduled and I got the time wrong and I thought this would be a good opportunity to um, to just let you know a little bit about me, about myself, to ask myself some questions. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from my memoir for you and uh, just kind of take it from there. I might do this from time to time anyway, uh, what they call a solo cast. I think it's uh, good just to kind of kind of clear the air, clear clear my throat, figuratively speaking, um, things like that. So um, a little bit about this podcast. Uh, we're in uh, episode seven now, and the first six episodes were interview podcasts, and I, I've had a lot of fun doing the interviews. Um, you know, a lot of this podcast really is an excuse for me to be able to talk to really cool and interesting people and uh, so far I've talked to some really cool and interesting people it's been really nice so I'm really happy about that so um so that's that's been good and I hope you've enjoyed it as well those of you who have listened to the for the to the first six episodes uh, the title of the podcast is wet writing education and technology and the idea is that each week I'll have somebody on who uh, is interested in or, or a figure in one or more of those fields writing education and or technology uh, it's a pretty I, I fun to realize it's either too broad or too narrow of a topic perhaps um, perhaps too broad because just about anybody could maybe fit into it uh, so if you are somebody who is, say, an educator and that's what you're interested in, you may not be interested in uh, some of the podcast episodes that are about, say, writing or self-publishing. Uh, if you're primarily a self-publishing person, you might not be interested in the, in the purely educational and, and um, kind of teaching methodologies and, and academic writing aspect of it. And uh, that's okay. You know, you don't have to listen to every episode. Uh, I'm hoping there's enough to catch everybody. And I'm, I'm assuming that there are people like me, people who are in a position where you're kind of between things, uh, where you're interested in writing. Maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're not, but you're just interested in education. Uh, maybe you're a writer, maybe you're not, maybe you're interested in writing. And maybe you're just uh, kind of interested in doing things differently than, than you've been doing them up, up until now. And that's been the main kind of theme so far in a lot of my guests, which is a lot of them just do what they want to do. They take the bull by the horns and they figure out ways to get their words out into the world, to teach differently, to teach outside of the uh, kind of prescribed methods of higher education, for example, and to teach things within higher education that might be outside of the uh, traditional kind of purview of, of education, uh, kind of push the boundaries and things like that. So a lot of people that I've had on have been uh, kind of non-traditional thinkers, people who um, 
you know, like I said, think outside of the box, and and that's that's the kind of the people I'm looking for uh, as guests and and as audience members. Uh, I'm beginning to see this podcast also in some ways as geared towards post act or alt act people, and what that means is uh, there's a prominent hashtag on Twitter called alt act. It's the alternate academic. It's for people who have higher degrees, masters and PhDs, who are uh, interested in going into careers that are not your traditional teaching career, maybe uh, um, in uh, archives and, and maybe in uh, writing centers or um, in other kind of broadly digital humanities sort of sort of fields. And uh, is this for people who don't want to teach or, or who just couldn't find teaching jobs or who are just looking for other ways to use the skills they've acquired in the master's or Ph.D. programs? Because uh, contrary to popular belief, you do gain a lot of skills beyond just uh, teaching at the, at the college level when you're in a Ph.D. or master's program. Uh, the term post-ac, I, th- I think, is very similar post-academic I think that's more for people who have decided to leave academia uh, for one reason or another whether it's uh, again couldn't find a job found a job and didn't like it I, I've been seeing more and more of that people actually people who actually land tenure track jobs but uh, don't like them I <laughs> don't want to be there anymore that sort of thing it's not unheard of and so the alt-act, post-act community, I think, um, might be particularly interested in, in a lot of the uh, a lot of the subjects I talk about here on the podcast. Maybe I could have called it that, the post-act, alt-act. I don't think so. I don't know if I was thinking about that when I started the podcast. Uh, when I started the podcast, I basically looked at my blog, A Memorable Fancy. I looked at the uh, six or seven years of archives I had there and, and thought, what are my interests? You know, what, what, what are the intersections here? And those intersections were writing, technology, and education. Uh, I've rearranged them just for the sake of the terrible acronym, uh, but, you know, WET, but, um, which I think I've mentioned in previous episodes is ironic since it's a clean podcast, but. Or maybe it's not ironic. Maybe, you know, you get wet to become clean. Whatever. It doesn't matter. What matters is I'm here talking to you today. And uh, I want to talk to you about writing um, in particular today. And, and possibly about the other, um, some of the other topics like education and technology. Uh, personally, I'm, uh, I'm recording this uh, in the afternoon, Thursday, the 16th of October. Uh, I have to teach at 6 o'clock. I have office hours at 4. I have to get down to campus. Um, it's been a very busy semester for me. Uh, I'm fortunate enough right now to have a lectureship position at the University of Michigan-Dearborn, where I'm uh, very happy. I'm very happy to teach there. I really enjoy the students and uh, the people, the the others, uh, my colleagues, the other professors. It's been a, it's been a really pretty good gig, and and that's nice. Uh, despite how incredibly busy I feel lately, uh, it's been it's been a really good gig, and I'm really I'm really happy to have it. Um, it's not tenure track, and uh, and that's okay for now because I have other things going on. I do some tutoring um, of high school kids, ACT, French, SAT, and that pays some of the bills. And I've got this uh, writing 
profession, writing career I'm trying to get off the ground right now. Um, yeah, some shorter pieces I'm going to put up on Amazon pretty soon. Uh, some of them will be under a couple pen names, actually, which I will not tell you. Um, and some of them will not be under pen names. So, and those I'll, I'll tell you all about for sure. Uh, one of those pieces of writing is uh, my memoir. I, I'm writing a memoir about graduate school, about my time in graduate school. And some of it has to do with coursework. Some of it has to do with the writing process. Uh, some of it has to do with the really strange things I did and went through during graduate school. My graduate school time was, was in a lot of respects, atypical. I had some really, um, really strange circumstances, which you can read about when I finally do publish it. Uh, but I think a lot of it's typical as well. I think that for most graduate students, there's a huge amount of procrastination that takes place and, uh, that I, 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 I've perfected the art of procrastination, especially during, during graduate school. It took me, uh, it took me 10 years to finish and it wasn't because I was toiling away at this, uh, you know, 9,000 page masterpiece. It was because I was procrastinating is because I was drinking and, fooling around and uh, getting married and getting divorced and uh, doing all kinds of other uh, other things during during that time. And uh, the memoir kind of chronicles a lot of that. Uh, I'm, think, I'm, I'm considering breaking that up into several distinct essays, uh, some of which will be more geared towards writing, some are kind of just anecdotal and things like that. Uh, still trying to make a decision on that because I do have a full draft of the thing done. It's just a matter of figuring out how to present it and then get it edited. edited, edited. <laughs> uh, finding an editor. How's that sound? And uh, getting that taken care of. So I'm going to read you uh, something from the beginning of it, which is uh, kind of my history because the the major through line, I think, of, of my, my memoir is the fact that I've always wanted to write. That's always been my dream. And I love teaching as well. And I thought that uh, higher ed would be a way to, to merge the two. And in some ways it has been, and in a lot of ways it has not been. But um, I'm going to read you a little bit from the uh, beginning of, of talking about when I, was, uh, when I was young and when I wanted to be a writer. When I was 10 years old, I knew I wanted to be a writer. Most kids I know have several career paths chosen when they are, are in elementary school. The whole world is open to them. Anything is possible. For me, there were three. Inventor, baseball player, and writer. Inventing is fun, but I don't really have that technical mind that an inventor needs. As far as baseball, what little boy doesn't want to be a famous sports player? That dream was not informed, however, by any particular skill. What I mean is, I was not good at baseball. I was very good at spelling and grammar, and I was a voracious reader at a young age. So my so writer was the only one of those three that I was actually good at. As the years went by and I entered middle school, I continued to foster the dream of writing. I wrote long, rambling stories about kids going on adventures, encountering leeches and mysterious cats in the woods. These stories I would write in longhand in spiral notebooks, page after page. In a way, I was an inventor after all, but, but my inventions were other worlds, characters, plots. 
In eighth grade, my love of science fiction arose. I remember it clearly. I was in Mr. Zealous's English 8 class. I sat in the back, as I often did. English was easy for me, and I got easily bored. Mr. Zealous also taught a science fiction class, apparently, or maybe he really liked it, but at any rate, he had a rack full of Asimov and Bradbury and Van Vaught in the back of the room, right next to where I sat. I assume this was coincidence, but who knows? I plucked a book off that shelf, and I started reading, and I was amazed at the worlds I discovered. Mr. Zealous would call on me for some answer to a grammar question, and I would have to rouse myself from my reverie to come up with the easy answer before delving back in head down. In ninth grade, I started looking around at my teachers and decided that I too would like the respect and admiration they garnered as part of their job. Actually, it was in Mr. Brown's English class that I decided I wanted to teach. He must have hated me. I finished assignments quickly and spent the rest of the time staring at Lisa, the cheerleader, across the room, or talking to my neighbor, or just being disruptive. I was a big thorn in his side, yet this is where I decided I wanted to teach. A bit of latent masochism, perhaps? It was also in Mr. Brown's class that I won my first writing award. We were invited to submit essays to a contest that spanned several districts. I submitted a first-person essay against a woman's lib, as I think it was called then, which breaks the fourth wall as the narrator's wife asks him what he's doing, and he meekly acquiesces. Not the most progressive of ideas, but come on, I was 13. At any rate, it won. I got a trophy, and the story printed in a collection. It was glorious. My parents were proud. I was proud. That trophy and collection still reside at my mom's house. Entering high school, writing and teaching were my eventual goals. Unfortunately, my more immediate goals were girls and causing trouble. I had discovered alcohol and, like many teenage boys, didn't care much for school. I still enjoyed my English classes, but I just didn't want to go to school all that often. I pulled together junior year, and by senior year I was on track. I discovered a love of languages, and in my senior year, I was in French 4, Spanish 2, and German 1, as well as advanced English, pulling my overall grade point all the way up to a 2.8. My, my counselor told me to go to Wayne State because they had a good foreign language program, so without questioning her or applying anywhere else, that's what I did. Turns out they did have a good foreign language program and a decent education program. And in five and a half years, I had a French major, an English minor, and a teaching certificate. My dream of teaching was going to come true. But what about writing? I did do some writing in college. Like in high school, my English classes proved easy, but a little more stimulating. I skipped introduction to college writing because of a high score on the AP English test, so I went right into intermediate writing during freshman year. I don't remember the teacher's name, but I do remember that he sounded a lot like Jim Henson. Looked like him, too. I sat next to a girl named Jenny, a blonde with well-defined athletic calves. Softball player, it turns out. She would ask me questions, wondering how I got such good grades on my essays. I couldn't answer her because, at that point, it all seemed natural to me. I wondered if her asking me about this was a way to ask for help, or maybe a little flirtation. I spent the entire semester thinking of ways to ask her out. Or giving her my number, but I never did. I was very shy around women at the time, obviously, but the fact that it is what I most remember about intermediate composition is telling. I also remember reading an article about Mickey Mouse, and the term neotenous always brings that class to mind. It was not until later in college that I began to write creatively. The impulse I had as a boy resurfaced with a strange intensity. 
I had a lot of angst as a young man. I listened to death metal and wore black exclusively. I brooded through my French classes and most of college. I felt at home with the bleak worldview of existentialism after reading Sartre and Camus in my French classes. Out of the frying pan. I taught high school French and English for one year. It was awful. I hated the hours. The kids were often disrespectful. They didn't care because most of them were not going to college. This was a rural community, and many of the students came from family farms where they would work after high school. College wasn't a priority for the vast majority. It wasn't the kids, though, that made the job so awful. The other adults in the building made my job difficult. Not all of them, of course, but many. In particular, the principal. He didn't hire me. He was new and came in a week after I did, and it seemed he had a mission. He headed out for a few of the teachers, in particular the second-year Spanish teacher and the new French teacher. That's me. He would do unscheduled observations of classrooms and give a few of us consistently bad reviews. It was clear he had some sort of mandate or agenda. Everyone in the school saw it, knew it was unfair, but nobody could do anything to help. My mentor sat in a few of my classes and gave alternate reviews, his evaluation being that I was no worse than any new teacher and that I was doing a fine job. We had a union, but I wasn't fully aware of what they could do for me. I didn't understand the grievance process, and my union steward, who was also my mentor, never mentioned it. In the end, I don't know what I could have done to keep that job, but the thing is, I'm not sure I wanted to stay there anyway. I knew it would get better eventually with the kids as I gained experience, but I felt intellectually starved. All the other teachers wanted to talk about was teaching and retirement, additions to their homes, retirement homes, golf, kids, ugh. I wanted out. The principal wanted me out. During this period, I got the call from Bob Burgoyne, who is now chair of the English department, telling me there, telling me there was an opening for a teaching assistant in film. He urged me to attend a get-together the English department was having at a downtown bar. I went, I schmoozed, I met other graduate students and professors, many of whom I had already known from the graduate classes I had already taken. I had an out from teaching high school, and this started me on my long journey into graduate school. Some assumptions I had entering grad school. I would be surrounded by interesting creative people who loved literature and film and wanted to think about them. Well, one of the problems I had at the software company I worked at before going into grad school and, and in teaching high school was being around boring people. Sure, there was a there was someone interesting here or there, a teacher or two at the school who had similar interests, but mainly the environments were unstimulating, uninspiring. Grad school, I figured, would solve this problem. Everybody there would be pursuing knowledge. They would be passionate, intelligent, inquisitive. This was largely true. Most people who enter graduate school in the humanities do it because they love the written word, they want to express themselves, they want to explore meanings and broaden their horizons. I met a lot of creative people. I met a lot of smart people. I also met a lot of people who were insecure, misguided, adrift. I know I was all of these things. As I took class after class, I began to see trends. I, st I struggled for a long time with a the theory taught in graduate school. It seemed as if other people did not struggle, however. I remember one graduate student in particular who seemed to have a proficient grasp on theory to the extent that he would often take over class discussions using some obscure theory or explicating a text with comparisons to post-structural whatever. 
I liked him. We had similar interests in music and politics. As the years went by, though, I came to realize that he had a pretty firm grasp on one strand of Marxist theory, but was incapable of branching out from there. He eventually moved away and, to my knowledge, never finished his degree. Looking back, I can think of several others who went down the same path of embracing theory, but not translating that into writing or finishing. In the end, I realized that these people were feigning mastery by staying close to their areas of understanding. Their confidence was manufactured, a ruse, a cover-up. Another assumption, I would be able to pursue my creative interests. Uh, this correlates with assumption number one about creative people. I found that the heavy emphasis on theory and the rigid structure of academic writing precluded creativity and encouraged conformity. As cutting-edge as a lot of what we were reading seemed, it all pointed in the same direction, used the same theoretical and critical basis. The opportunities for creative expression were few and far between for the typical graduate student. Some of this came from insecurity on the part of other students and professors, but I suspect most of it came from my own insecurity and fear of what those other students and professors might think of me pursuing creative work. At any rate, I found that, with a few exceptions, my own creativity fell by the wayside. It was not encouraged and was, at times, actively discouraged. It seemed to me that the poetry or creative writing students, what few there were in the program, were looked at with derision. The further I got into graduate school, the more I realized that if you're not a theory head, and if you don't write in the same stodgy, formulaic style as your peers, you will be ostracized. I suspect this is true at a lot of places. It is true that you have to be able to master academic writing to survive as an academic. You have to be able to recount an argument, summarize, attack, defend. You have to find a way to respond to dense prose. And this is usually with dense prose. I think one of the problems with the style of graduate school is that one reads Derrida and Foucault and one thinks he or she has to be, or worse is, as good as Derrida or Foucault. This leads to some pretty turgid prose. I remember turning in a paper in a film class very early on, in which I used a playful tone, employing a few film-related puns, and receiving the word avoid next to one. I was hurt a little, but in retrospect, that comment was probably correct. This pro professor was not trying to squelch my creativity, but helping me avoid uh, easy jokes, I guess. So while I, while I understand that graduate students must learn to write in a style consistent with that of their eventual academic peers, this writing does not have to operate to the exclusion of other ways of writing, but it often does, and both professors and fellow students participate in this exclusion. Another assumption, I would be able to get a good-paying job. This is a double whammy. The first part of the assumption is that I could get a job. The other part is that it would pay well. When I entered graduate school, I had big dreams of landing a great job with stellar pay and job security. I couldn't, have been, I couldn't have been more wrong. I had no idea what professors made. I figured my dissertation advisor made six figures, and I would start pretty high and work my way higher quickly. I never looked it up. I assumed that if high school teachers started in the 20s and 30s, professors, professors must start at least at 60, if not higher. After all, they were the vaunted keepers of culture, teaching at the very highest levels of education. Why wouldn't they get paid huge amounts of money after dedicating nearly a decade to graduate school, publishing books, and generally being members of the highest echelon of society? My lack of research at this point was probably self-preservation and hopeful thinking. 
I wanted out of what I was doing, and this allowed me to extend my lifetime of schooling. I probably didn't want to know how much I might get paid at the end. Even if I knew, I might have gone ahead because I thought I would finish sooner. I underestimated the amount of debt I would accrue, and $50,000 is still more than I would have made teaching high school. If only I had stayed in the tech industry. <laughs> the other factor that I was unaware of was the chance of finding a job. All the professors I knew got their jobs right out of school, or in many cases, while they were still working on their dissertations. I could certainly do the same. In some ways, this assumption was not entirely unfounded. When I entered graduate school, people were still getting jobs. I was seeing people get multiple interviews and landing jobs, or so I thought. Either way, the dismal job situation of the four years or more surrounding my dissertation events and graduation was not the case when I started. It may have been unforeseeable, or perhaps it wasn't, but I was unable to foresee it. As the market tightened, as more universities lost funding and replaced retiring tenured faculty with part-timers and visiting professors, the credentials hiring universities asked for grew and grew. In 2000, one might be able to land a tenure-track job with a journal publication and a few conference presentations. In 2010... I began to hear of people with book deals or even finished books languishing on the market. When I started, I had a list of places I wanted to go. California, New York. As the years went by, I saw a lot of people ahead of me land jobs in places like Fargo, North Dakota, or Alabama, or deep in the south of Texas. Not places I particularly cared to go, but I certainly would. Instead of thinking about where I wanted to go, I started instead to list places I would absolutely not go. As the years marched on and the job market tightened, the list started to shrink. But I was in a hot topic, I told myself. Film is still hiring like crazy, and digital media is hotter than hot right now. I wasn't wrong, but I also wasn't finishing quickly enough to take advantage of that trend. Volunteering to be the graduate student representative of the job search committee brought the truth home to me. We were hiring for two positions, one of them a junior faculty position, similar to those to which I would be applying in a few years. We received in excess of 300 applications for that position, which we had to whittle down to about a dozen. No dissertation in hand, out. No publications, out. And then the hard work began. The three people we invited for campus visits came from good schools, Chicago, Duke, NYU, and the like. The candidate we selected had many job offers and chose not to come to Detroit, and the second candidate ended up being a fine fit for the department and also came from a fine school. We at Wayne State nearly had our pick between candidates at the best schools in the country. What chance, then, would a Wayne State graduate have? Despite the fact that I had a stellar committee with big names, the Wayne State University letterhead alone would put me in many rejection piles. And then I started noticing that promising students of my cohort were not getting interviews at all. Something had changed. Things were bleak. And then here's another uh, excerpt from a, from a different section of the, of the memoir. As a graduate student in an English department, I had to take cognate classes in other departments. As a film guy, all of my cognates were in the communication department, where I learned that the approaches to the topic were drastically different. In English, we did a lot of textual analysis or theory-inflected writing. Everything we did was qualitative analytics, supported by whatever theory was convenient. Rather than create studies and analyze the data, the typical work in the humanities concerns arguments and conclusions drawn from close textual readings or perhaps engagement with different theories or other criticism. 
Some of it was a working through of a cultural theory or a psychoanalytical exercise, but most of it stayed pretty close to the text. It is not empirical. Across campus, in communication, most everything was quantitative. I took a media effects class and found myself drowned in different types of theories and articles, theories based on testing and articles with charts and tables. It was a little difficult, but mainly it was illuminating. I learned how the other side lives, and I have found that I still remember a lot of those theories and use them when teaching media classes. I have never once used any of them in an academic paper, <laughs> but I'm glad I know them. My classmates in that course were no-nonsense, wanting to assimilate the material and get out. I was, I was a little more playful and was trying to figure out how these might help me if I could wrap my head around them. The professor was also playful and would refer to me as the humanities guy and pleasantly rib me about our mode of analysis, drawing contrast whenever possible. I still think, think fondly of him and always look forward to running into him at functions. It wasn't his fault that what he was teaching wasn't my cup of tea. I took another class in communication that ended up being the exact opposite of this class, much more in line with what I was used to in English. Some of the same students were in this class, and they seemed to struggle quite a bit. The professor was an iconoclast in that department, and she had students read postmodern theory and think about gender politics. We had to do presentations and papers, and much of this was foreign to many of the students. Some, some took to it quickly, and some resisted to the end. But I thought of it as a refreshing twist where I could work on some of my stuff without being constrained by the usual norms of the English department. I felt allowed to express myself creatively for the first time in graduate school. I wrote an essay in that class that consisted of fragments from various theories about video and film, hoping that in the connections between the snippets, a greater meaning would emerge. At the, at the time, I was invigorated by the work, and it was a sort of it was a sort of hyperlinked exercise and was, I thought, pretty avant-garde. Remember, this is the 90s. Um... Actually, it was probably the 2000s, early 2000s. She loved it. I ran into her on campus one day, and when I introduced her to my companion, she turned to her and said, He's going to be famous someday. I submitted the piece uh, to an essay contest in the English department in one second place. The commenter uh, on the of the contest said something about the work resembling that of David Foster Wallace, an author I, at that point, had not yet read. Now that I have, I take that as a compliment. At some point in the semester, that professor noticed that the room we were in had nothing but pictures of white guys, previous deans, I suppose, and and organized a lighthearted protest at the classroom of the current chair of the department. He, a white man, was not impressed. I don't know what kind of disciplinary action was taken beyond maybe a stern talking to, but she was basically gone a few years later, uh, ostensibly for causing trouble in the department, if you believe the rumors. I don't really know the details, if she was fired for pranks like that or if she was, there was simply a falling out or a difference of philosophy, but her departure was not surprising. That department was quite conservative, and they didn't want anyone rocking the boat. The woman, she was an outcast, an other, a rabble-rouser. She wasn't like them. She pointed things out. She should have been in the English department where her politics would have fit better, but frankly, I don't think she would have fit in there either. As liberal as the English department is or was, only certain circumscribed types of rebellion are permitted. Anything that threatens to actually change something would have been quashed there as well, albeit perhaps in a more subtle way. So there are some excerpts from my uh, <laughs> from my upcoming memoir. Uh, I kind of picked and chose a little bit uh, among passages having to do more with writing. Uh, I have a lot about teaching in there as well. Uh, I'd be happy to come back and read some more if uh, if people want to hear that. 
I solicited questions for this episode, but um, I didn't really give it a lot of time, <laughs> so I didn't really, really, really get anything. But um, I do have I have one question. Yeah, so I got a question from Rebecca that says, Dr. Marshall, it would appear that self-publishing does not come without its own bevy of pitfalls. What is the most concise, efficient way to go about the self-publishing publishing process? Do you have any words of advice, and have you noticed any speed bumps worth avoiding in your own self-publishing journey? Uh, and then she talks about Kristen Lamb, who has a blog with some advice, which I can put in the uh, show notes. Um, You know, since I'm so early on in my in my career, my self-publishing career, I really don't have a lot to say about it. Um, I, I do believe that it's the, uh, it's the way to go. If you listen to some of the previous podcast, uh, episodes here, especially the one with Jim Crew and the one with the self-publishing guys, and, uh, even the one with Paul Levinson, you'll, you'll see that, um, a lot of people have had some, some really nice success with self-publishing. Um, the memoir that I, uh, from which I just read, I am definitely going to self-publish. I, I don't really, I don't really see why I should go to a publisher with it. Um, I don't need the publisher's kind of stamp of approval for me to feel good about it. Um, I don't, I don't think that the benefits of going traditional as they call it, you know, using going through traditional publishing, um, are really worth the, the time and effort that it takes. You know, they, uh, one of the main, uh, one of the main advantages cited in doing traditional publishing is that you can get into bookstores and you can have a physical copy of your book. Uh, you can do physical copies now with self-publishing pretty easily and it's true that uh, if you self-publish, especially uh, e-publishing, which is what I intend to do primarily, uh, you probably will not end up in Barnes & Noble. Uh, Barnes & Noble does not like to carry Amazon products for obvious reasons. I just don't think it's worth the trade-off. You know, the the memoir, once I'm finished with it, and by finished I mean I need to... Uh, get it in the hands of some readers, uh, beta readers. Uh, if you want to be a beta reader, shoot me an email at eric at ericmarshall.net. I'd love to, I'd love to have a few more, uh, people who can give me feedback. And then, uh, I want to do a professional edit and get a professional cover made. So once that's done, I can have it up for, and for sale within, within 24 hours. And if I go traditional, I'd have to go through the editing pro. I'd have to find an agent. I'd have to find a publisher. I'd have to go through the editing process several times with them, which is that part's fine, I guess. But and then I'd have to wait eighteen months, maybe two years, before uh, before my book sees the light of day. And so I don't really, I don't really see the point in that. I I'm. I want to keep writing. I want to write quickly. I want to publish and I want to get it up there. You know, uh, I can charge a lot less for my, uh, published material than a publisher will, uh, which is good for the reader. And it's good for me because at the moment I get to, uh, if I, if I publish on Amazon, I get to keep 70% of the sale price. Uh, in other places it's similar. And if I sell direct, I get to keep almost a hundred percent of that. So, I don't get an advance and, and I'm not in, in bookstores, but I don't really care about that so much. 
who goes to bookstores anyway? I mean, I go to bookstores, but I, uh, you know, I don't have, I don't have any burning desire to have my book somewhere on a shelf that no one's ever going to look at anyway. <laughs> you know, and maybe if it gets to, to the stage where I, I have a book that I feel is more widely, uh, applicable or, or has a wider appeal, um, or if I get, um, interest for, uh, solicited from, uh, from a publisher, then, you know, maybe I'll consider it. Uh, there are there are advantages. There are reasons to do that. I'm not, you know, I'm not completely against uh, bookstores or publishers or anything like that. Uh, I think there's a place for everybody. But uh, I think some of the the pitfalls are. I think there's um, still, in some respects, a vanishing stigma, you know, of self publishing. I think that. When readers buy books online, when they buy ebooks through Amazon, they don't know who published the book. Um, if you go, if you look at the last ebook you bought, you probably don't know who the publisher is. It might have been self-published even. But if you tell somebody, "Oh, I self-published a book," I still think there's a little bit of a stigma there. It's like, "Oh, you couldn't find a publisher, or it's not good enough uh, to get you know through the New York publishing gamut." And I. I wholeheartedly reject that. I've read some really good fiction and nonfiction that has been self-published and, uh, and you might have too without even knowing it, but there's some, there's some wonderful stuff out there. Uh, but I do think there's a little bit of a stigma there. Um, and I think that there is a lot of bad material out there that's self-published. I think there's a lot of sloppily edited, um, badly marketed kind of crap out there. Uh, that that would not make it through into traditional publishing. You know that is one advantage of traditional publishing. The stuff that that gets published, you know, has been through editors and has been through a vetting process, and there's a professional cover made, and and a lot of people have looked at it, and you you have some assurance of quality, um, although they are also calculating for. Um, how much money they think they can make on it, how many they can sell. So maybe there there's a certain aspect of homogenization going on there. Perhaps uh, you have to write in well-defined genres and in 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 particular ways, perhaps. But um, but yeah, there's a lot of crap out there for sure. Uh, but I don't worry about the crap that's out there. I don't worry about what other people are doing. You know, I want I want my words to be read. I want people to read my words. I think there are people that want to read them and I want to get them out there in a way that is accessible, fast, but you know, reliable and respectable too. I want to be able to, uh, I want, I want to, I want to be proud of the books I, I publish and the articles I publish. And I want people to, to want to come back and read more. And, you know, this has been my dream as, as you just heard in the memoir piece, uh, my dream has always been to write, and right now in 2014, there's never been a better time for writers. I have friends, and I know people who who have written novels and um, you know other other works that are just sitting in drawers, sitting on hard drives, and that to me is a really sad thing because because they could be out, they could be for sale by Monday. Um, people could be reading them, you know, the day after tomorrow 
easily. You have to do a lot yourself with self-publishing. That's another one of the pitfalls is you have to do a lot of stuff yourself. You have to hire your own editor um, or find an editor. You have to worry about cover design. Uh, you're in charge of the marketing. You're in charge of everything. You're your own publishing company when you when you self-publish. And that's daunting for a lot of people. Um, I think that the submitting to the New York publishers is a uh, is a great way to avoid actually having people read your work. Uh, you 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 submit, you know that the odds are small. You get rejected, and and you say, "Well, I knew it wasn't good enough." You know that just uh, really confirms what I already believed. You know, um, or. It, gives you I think some people have a sense of relief you know well you know I don't have to worry I don't have to worry about being criticized you know because there's nothing to criticize because there's no work because it's not out there and I know I go through that oh man do I go through that I have this sensor in my head this self-sensor that just you know I externalize it onto other people onto my mom onto professors onto the general public whoever that might be uh, onto you know people I know in my personal life but I know that it's me and I'm my own worst critic and it's very easy to not put something out because you're afraid of that criticism that you've you're already going through in your head I mean, I think that it really is one of the reasons that the memoir and the novel, of which um, I've finished a draft of each, you know, I have a full draft of a novel, full draft of a memoir that I have still not had professionally edited or, you know, I'm afraid to look at them sometimes, you know, um, and I, and that's part of it. That's probably one of the reasons that my stuff's not out there. So I'm not exactly practicing what I preach quite yet, but I am on the, on the road to doing so. I do have a plan in place. and uh, It's just a matter of kind of pulling the trigger. So those are some of the pitfalls. The, uh, the, the stigma, the uh, potential perceived lack of respect perhaps, and the fact that you really do have to kind of face your own demons if you have any kind of self-doubt or self-criticism. You have to face that and you have to get, get through it. You know, and uh, those are some of the, I think, some of the pitfalls to doing self-publishing, is it, it, publishing in general, but definitely for self-publishing because the onus is on you completely as the uh, as the writer and publisher. So that's uh, that's something right there that I think uh, stops stops a lot of people. But there are no more excuses. You know, I said this uh, in the last episode with Jim Kukral. I said the the. You don't have excuses anymore. If you want, if you are a writer and you want people to read your words, it's easy to do. So, thanks for the question. I re- I appreciate it. Um, I'm going to stop now. <laughs> so, I hope you like the solo cast. Uh, I, I would, like I said, I would love to write, read some more of my writing uh, or, or address other questions in, in future episodes. Uh, I might even make this part of um, perhaps part of a regular feature, either uh, between episodes during the week or maybe uh, in addition to the interviews, uh, if, if you like that. If you think that's a good idea, if you think that's a bad idea, uh, let me know. You can uh, email me at eric at ericmarshall.net. You can go to ericmarshall.net slash wet and leave a comment. This is episode number seven. Uh, you can leave comments on the page there. 
That's uh, Eric with a K and Marshall with two L's. E-R-I-K, Marshall.net slash wet. Uh, that's, a, that's a good way to, to let me know what you think. Let me know if you want more of this, less of this, uh, more interviews. If you have suggestions for people I might approach for interviews, you can hit me up there as well. Um, I do have a Twitter account for this podcast as well. It's Wet Podcast. I'm not really using it that much at the moment, but uh, but it's there. Uh, if you really want to engage with me on Twitter, though, emarsh, E-M-A-R-S-H, is the place to go. I'm, I'm fairly active on Twitter, and that's a good place to, to get a hold of me. So uh, thanks again. I appreciate any reviews on iTunes, um, any reviews on Stitcher, anything like that. I do appreciate that. It helps me uh, keep going, gives me a little bit of feedback. The music you're hearing on all of these episodes so far um, has been uh, Revolution Void. That's the name of the band. And I hope you enjoy it. And I will talk to you next week. Bye.